this episode of The Naturist Living Show, we discuss breasts. This episode of The Naturist Living Show is brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. At Bear Oaks, we offer traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Free your body, free your mind. www.bearoaks.ca Such a short term, such a short word, and yet so full of issues, so loaded with meaning. Um, it's uh, probably one of the body parts, if not the body parts, that is uh, most talked about, has the most issues for both men and women, is a subject of an awful lot of uh, obsession on both genders uh, for different reasons, but well, maybe not entirely. Certainly, you know, it's what we're not supposed to be showing, apparently, except that's there are lots of places where you can be top-free now, legally, including Ontario. There are certainly top-free beaches in Europe, although those apparently are not as popular as they once used to be with a younger generation. Perhaps the influence of uh, American media, movies, television, that kind of thing, we're certainly becoming a lot more homogenized in terms of what we think is wrong, what we think is right, what our values are. Generally, it's because of a perceived sexuality. Um, some people say they're sex organs. I, I, you know, I think that's kind of crazy because how can you say that something that is not directly used for reproduction um, is a sex organ? I think the sex organs are pretty clearly defined. I'm not going to suggest there's no sexuality in breasts. Um, you know, there's unquestionably they're attractive to men, um, but they're not the only parts of the body that are attractive to men. Um, lips, legs, other all kinds of parts of the body, waists are all, faces, eyes, they're all attractive to men. They're all sexual in a way because we're sexual creatures. So to specifically isolate women's breasts as sexual seems a little crazy, particularly since men, of course, don't have to cover their breasts. And I've heard from women that they find men's chests pretty sexy sometimes as well. So, you know, the sexiness doesn't make any sense in some ways. I, I mean, it is, I have read that, you know, that women's breasts are unusually large and out there. Um, in a lot of other mammals, breasts are almost non-existent until they have um, young ones, young whatever the species is. Uh, when our cat had kittens, she developed much more significant breasts. Now you can barely see, and before you, before and now you can only see uh, small nipples through the fur, but while she was uh, nursing, obviously you could see more. So the suggestion is that women have breasts as a sexual um, uh, attractiveness sign symbols. You know, it's the same reason that peacocks have developed big shiny feathers and bright colors. We develop different things that are signals of fertility and uh, to attract the opposite gender. Both genders do that to attract the other gender. There's all kinds of things that are symbols of their sexuality and their fertility. But they are very upsetting, apparently. 
Um, and uh, we uh, talked about it in episode 10 in August of 2009. I talked about um, a very cleverly written post in a blo- from a blog um, called A Secret Public Blog, uh, titled Nipple Radiation. And uh, the uh, author made the point uh, that Obviously, nipples must somehow cause harm because we have to block them and hide them all the time. And so he he titled the the danger uh, nipple radiation, and uh, he says it's obviously a very dangerous phenomena because it must be very harmful to human. Although it's blocked by the thinnest little piece of clothing, this radiation, and that children are um, immune when while they're being breastfed because obviously it's okay to see nipples while you're being breastfed. And uh, other than that, once they go beyond that, apparently it can be very traumatic to children. Once they stop breastfeeding, they lose all their immunity. And it's true because that's one thing that people say, you know, if women are top free, they say, what about the children? (laughs) Which seems so ridiculous to me always because really they're the ones that the breast actually exists for. That's the function. So I'm not sure why they'd be so disturbed by it. And in fact, uh, the other point he makes, uh, well, he makes many points, but another important point he makes is that the uh, nipple radiation is only transmitted by the female of the species, and only once they've reached puberty. Because, of course, it's okay to see a woman topless uh, until she reaches puberty, and it's okay to see a man topless. So, obviously, only uh, mature females uh, emit this um, nipple radiation. And it is nipple because... The definition of where the breast starts and end is very difficult, and we discussed that in another show, actually, on the human body um, in November 2009, episode number 13, we discussed specific issues that people had with breasts. And really, when you try to make a law, the only thing that you can make illegal is the, the nipple and the areola. Uh, because it's, it's so hard to define otherwise where the breast starts and ends. And so low-cut uh, dresses are fine that reveal a lot of the breasts and very tiny little bikinis are okay and everywhere. Um, and, and in fact, there was a, uh, a really strange thing. There's, there's a, an organization called gotopless.org, and they promote this yearly topless day. And uh, they, through that site, there's a a company that sells something called Nipsies. And what they are is latex nipple pasties. Because if you put a little tiny pasty over the nipple and the areola on a woman, then they become perfectly legal in almost every place because that's really the truly scary and offensive part. Why? Who knows? Who knows? It's very strange. Um, you know, breasts are, are obviously a, a bit of an obsession for a lot of men. You could argue that part of it is because they are so... Uh, hidden but you know you can still see the shape and form and what most women wear is somehow meant to reveal while hiding at the same time and to entice and and men go for that so clearly there is a sexuality in the breast and i don't think we we should be denying that but it's not bad and men can control themselves anyway well of course as naturists we know that we know we can be nude and men can control themselves and women can control themselves and we can be people but breasts are also key to women's self-esteem. They're very, um, they've become extremely important to them um, because presumably men are so obsessed with them. So the self-esteem importance is not in a very positive way. Um, you know, there are all types 
of breasts. There's all sizes of breasts. And, and women who have large breasts think they should be smaller, and women who have small breasts would like to be bigger. They all seem to want to strive for an ideal that I'm not sure exists, um, because uh, I think men are attracted to all types of breasts, despite the fact that they may be a little... Uh, intrigued shall we say by very large breasts I, I don't think i think that reaction is not necessarily an attraction as much as a uh, uh, curiosity or getting their attention um i i it's so important to women that you know that they get surgery um to get to change the way they look um, i'm not saying that women have very large breasts who need breast reduction that's frivolous but I think any woman who needs to get a press enhancement to feel better about herself, I think that's a little sad because, you know, I've I've had close relationship with women that had small breasts and large breasts, and it didn't have any impact on our relationship, obviously, or, or on our sexuality. Um, I think women listen to the media, and we've talked about that a lot in the past, about the harm that does, but... I think women are listened to the media and affected by the, by the media far too much. Um, I actually had a friend who told me that um, if she ever had breast cancer and they told her she'd have to get a mastectomy, she wouldn't do it. She'd rather die. I mean, that, that's I was so stunned, so dumbfounded that anyone would say they would rather take a risk of dying than having their breast cut off. So, you know, it's fairly sad that surgery is done just to make people feel better because it really shouldn't be like that. And and that same episode, number 13, and from November 2009, there was a, a part where we discussed a, a, sh- a reality show called Dr. 90210, that being the zip code for Beverly Hills. And uh, this is a plastic surgeon who calls himself a psychiatrist with knives. Good to see how's the trip. How are you? It was good. good. To some degree, we're psychiatrists with knives. I sleep on my side. Is that side is fine. Yeah. Just don't lay on it for a week. Okay. After that, you're good to go, sweetie. Okay. Something happens, you roll over. It's okay. Studies show that we have as much cures in mild depression as psychiatrists do. Everything is ready to go. Thank you. But you're obviously. This is so warped that I don't even know what to say. The whole idea that you can make people feel better by hacking away at their body. The problem they're having is a psychological, emotional one. And yeah, you could probably make it better by hacking away at the body. I'm sure the statistics are true, but is that really the way to solve it? You know, if somebody's uh, upset with some other part of their body, should we just cut it off? Apparently there are people actually who do that. That's a whole other topic. But the, the, the psychology, the emotional disturbance that we get because of what society tells us shouldn't be solved by surgery. And that's why I think naturism is a, is a wonderful antidote. It's therapy. Um, because in naturism, you really get to see that there are all types of bodies and there's all types of breasts. And in fact, I'm not sure that it is to uh, women who have identical breasts. I think there's that much variety. And you really get to see that in a naturist environment. And I think you get to feel a little bit better about yourself. And we have women at Bear Oaks who've had mastectomies. And we've had women with scars. And and they're very comfortable with who they are because they realize people accept them the way they are. 
the obsession that we have with uh, breasts and nipples is, uh, you know, I think one of the best examples of it is the 2004 uh, Janet Jackson, uh, as they called it, wardrobe malfunction, where for nine, I think it's nine sixteenths of a second, um, her nipple was exposed on television from a fair distance. And for that, CBS was fined half a million dollars, which itself was ridiculous. That was later overturned, but that they would even find CBS, who obviously had no control over it, for a shot of a nipple that was really probably not viewable until they really zoomed in on it. Most people probably didn't see anything, except they made a big thing out of it. They even called it Nipplegate. Let's listen to this uh, MSNBC uh, segment, a little clip from it that talks about it. My fellow Americans, our four-year national nightmare is over. Nipplegate is no more. Our number one story on the countdown tonight, even if you were not one of the 90 million viewers watching the Super Bowl on February 1st, 2004, you surely have memory of Janet Jackson's soft chest part exposed by Justin Timberlake during the halftime show. The decency police didn't buy the wardrobe malfunction excuse, slapping CBS with a $550,000 fine, all for a moment that lasted nine sixteenths of a second. That fine was tossed by the third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals today. It's now history. Alas, there's no better way to commemorate this final chapter than by looking back at Countdown's original coverage of this earth-shattering story. The breast really is a, a, a perfect symbol about how conflicted we are about our own bodies, uh, you know, uh, how uncomfortable we are with ourselves and who we are. Uh, it, it, I think the breast provides the best example of the contradiction uh, within ourselves and, and our bodies. The fact that it's not logical, it's completely emotional, and, and frankly, I'm not sure where it comes from. But it, take the example back to uh, this Dr. 90210 show. Uh, in that one, we, uh, we get to see this woman who's um, getting a sex change. She's becoming a man, but she still has women's breasts. So she goes into surgery to have the breast turn into men's breast, to have the breast reduction, essentially. And when the surgery starts, we can't see her nipple. It's fuzzed out. It has that little fuzzy thing they do on television to hide those bits that are so scary and offensive. But a minute later, after they've removed nothing from the surface, nothing you can see has been removed. What's been removed is the mammary gland and some of the fatty tissue underneath the skin and the nipple. After they've done that, now we can see the nipple and areola perfectly clearly. Why? Because now it's a man's breast. Showing you that really is there is no difference between a man's nipple and a woman's nipple. Some are bigger, some are smaller, but really, what's the difference? And a more recent example of that, actually, is in a show called Grey's Anatomy. And in this one, a young boy of 13 comes into hospital to have his... Uh, well, to get breast reduction surgery um, because he has women's breasts. Thirteen is young for plastic surgery, but your kid's not going to grow out of it. He's already gone through puberty, and his father's had the same condition his entire life. Look, if he had weight to lose, I would advise diet and exercise. But your kid doesn't have a weight problem. He has breasts. He needs excision of the glandular tissue. And yeah, it could wait till he's older, but he's a dude with breasts and he's headed for high school and there's no reason he should be subjected to the psychological damage that comes from years of taking schoolyard crap. Look, you want your kid to be a man? Let him make his own decisions. While this is going on, we are looking at this boy, and it is a boy, 
And he has in front on his chest what I assume is a very well done uh, piece of uh, makeup and uh, prosthetics because they look just like women's breasts. They look exactly like women's breasts, but they're not fuzzed out and they're not hidden. Why? Because either we are seeing a boy's breast, which is shaped like a woman's breast, or we realize we're seeing prosthetics. Either way, we're not seeing a real woman's breast. And apparently when they are not real, they're not scary and they're not offensive and it's okay to see them. Does that make any sense? Just like the little pasties. Once you put the little pasties, even if they look like real nipples on them, then it's legal. In fact, if you were a shirt that had pictures of your breast, if you're a woman, that would be legal because it's not the real thing. The real thing, though, really bad for whatever reason. There, I mean, there are lots of people who are fighting this, obviously, and there's been a lot of battles that have been won. There's an organization called Terra, the Top Free Equal Rights Association, that has a website with lots of information about battles that are happening everywhere across the country. You can see it all the time. Women are protesting. Women are asking for equal rights, whether it's for breastfeeding or whether it's just for being equal with men and comfortable with who they are. Women are not necessarily accepting what you see and hear all the time in the media. So if you have a chance, go take a look at the Terra site. Um, I'll put links, of course, as I usually do, to everything I mention in the show notes at naturistliving.bayroaks.ca. And I'll mention that again at the end of the show. This year, though, I'm doing this in 2011, if you're listening to this show later on, this year is a very special anniversary in Ontario because it was 20 years ago that a very brave woman named Gwen Jacob fought for the right to be top-free in Ontario. She was arrested after the second time walking around top-free on a particularly hot day. She was arrested on July 19th of 1991. That's 20 years ago. And she was charged, believe it or not, with committing an indecent act or merely walking around without a shirt on, just like her male friends were doing. She fought it. She lost. And uh, then she appealed, and she won on appeal. Uh, the Court of Appeal reversed the decision. And that was... 15 years ago, because that happened in 1996. So this is the year, the 15th and 20th anniversary of that very special event. And last year, actually, um, there's two uh, brave young women who decided that they want to celebrate that. And so they organized the Top Freedom Day of Pride, not a protest, because it is legal in Ontario. It's legal, but you don't see a lot of women doing it. It takes a lot of strength of character to be in public, whether at the beach or at the park or anywhere else without a shirt on in Ontario as a woman, despite the fact it's legal. Um, and that's because the societal pressure is still huge to not do it. You get the looks from the women, the disapproving looks, and you get the leering from the men who are a little deprived, I guess, because they get all excited. They get to see a naked breast. So it takes a lot of strength of character to do what Lindsay and Andrea did. And they had their event on August 28th, 2010. It was a Saturday. And, uh, well, I'll let you listen to my interview with them. How did this idea of having a top-free celebration start? Um, well, Andrea and I decided to go down uh, to the river to go swimming one day because it was really, really hot this summer. And uh, 
we decided to swim without our shirts on because I don't really think... Andrea didn't have a bathing suit that day, I'm fairly sure. So, uh, yeah, to uh, save our shirts, we went topless swimming, and uh, we really enjoyed how it kind of felt to be kind of free and expressing our... Um, our right to be topless in public and then we kind of walked back to my house without our shirts on and a couple teenagers were walking past and they kind of laughed at us and we thought it was pretty funny so uh, we thought it would be an interesting concept to make a uh, sort of little festival out of. There was also this big group of kids that like walked by you remember seeing them and they just like sneered at us and started laughing and then we were walking away and we just like cracked up like the moment we were out of earshot it was great it was it was just we were so shocking and we were so surprised how, you know, shocked people were. So, so how did you go from that experience to deciding you wanted to do the celebration? Lindsay and I took a picture of us on the, on the porch and we thought that was kind of fun. Just like with our heads turned, you, you can, I think it's all over Google Images now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then I was, I think I was talking to her on Facebook and I was like, do you want to make a festival out of it? She was like, yeah, and then we got really excited. And Originally, it was going to be kind of like a walk through downtown, and we were going to call it like the topless jaunt or something. And uh, then we decided to uh, make it kind of like a, a walk through downtown, and, and then uh, a little kind of meeting and maybe a little festival with a potluck, and then that kind of evolved into realizing it was much too... Uh, I don't know, much too much li liability to have food involved. And then walking through downtown was also kind of like pushing it in people's faces. And we didn't really want to do that too much. So we just kind of decided to make it a one location uh, day uh, in the downtown square where, you know, people can avoid it if they want. But yeah. So it was going to be a little festival and you put it on Facebook and it went a little further than that. So what happened? Um, I think we had about nine people join originally and Lindsay and I were like, oh, we got nine people to show up to this. This is great. And then, you know, the next day it was 16 and then it just went up like exponentially from there. And, um, I started contacting some, yeah, started contacting the newspapers. And once that happened, then it just whoosh, went right up. So, and then we realized we had a pretty big deal on our hands and we had a CTV, um, woman call us and ask to do a, a story on us and then... The CTV story was actually pretty funny because we uh, we beat out Jean Chrétien on uh, on the on the TV that that uh, that night at six o'clock or whatever. He he came before us, and so we were like the last story, the big bang at the end. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so the day came and you had the event. So tell me what the event was like. Well, it was kind of cool. Uh, originally, we we got there and we started setting up, and and uh, you know people started kind of coming and just kind of looking to see what was happening and then you know it got to be about three o'clock or whatever the start time was and uh Andrea and I were the only girls there that were going to take off their shirts at that moment <laughs> and so we took off our shirts realizing that we were completely surrounded by by you know a crowd of older men with camera phones and dark sunglasses and it was kind of creepy but uh Shortly after we kind of initiated the uh, taking off our shirts thing, um, there was the group of uh, topless women from that, uh, from, what's it called? I can't remember. 
anyway, their, their motto was like, uh, free your breasts, free your mind or something. And, uh, so they showed up and then that was another like five people. And then we probably had around 20 to 25 women without their shirts on, uh, at, at one point during the day. And, and it was really cool too, because after we after, uh, about two hours, the, the men that were kind of standing around the outside of the square, and just watching us realize that, you know, it wasn't really a sexual event. We weren't taking off our shirts and, you know, waving them in their faces. It was, it was, you know, just a bunch of average women walking around without shirts, and it wasn't really any anything too special. So uh, they kind of dispersed after they got bored and realized that. And uh, and then after that, it was it was a really comfortable, good day, full of really good music and lots of boobs. <laughs> so... How did it feel? Let's call them the creepy men. How did it feel? You got there. There's all this creepy men with cameras, and you still you did it anyway. Did you think about not doing it? Uh, yeah. I went up to Lindsay at one point, and I was like, because it, it was literally, oh, there was this one guy at the one of the tables, and he was just staring at us like, like that really intense, piercing stare. Yeah, and he had like his shirt open, just like this greasy old man. And I was about to take my shirt off, and I just, like, glared back at him as long as I could. And then I was like, okay, I'm freaked out, and I looked away. But uh, I went up to Lindsay, and I was like, Yo, we we don't have to do this. But uh, we we both knew that we did. So, um, yeah, so I took my shirt off, and so did Lindsay. I think we did it at the same time. And we were going to get painted. Um, originally, I wasn't going to get painted, but uh, it was too it was too scary to be completely bare when we were the only ones. How did you feel, though, when you were doing it? Terrified. <laughs> it was really scary. Um, I was waiting for the, the lady that I'd been talking to and coordinating with previously. And so when I was getting painted, I saw her show up with, like, her crowd behind her. I think there was, like, about, yeah, about five of them. And I see them running at me without their shirts on, and I got really excited. I ran out and gave her a big hug, and then it was fine from then on. So, yeah, no. Just after after the uh, the other group of topless women showed up, we we felt a lot more comfortable, and and more people were getting more encouraged to do it. And I, I do think that uh, more people would have uh, felt more comfortable to take off their shirts. There were some ladies who said that you know they kind of wish they had, or or they kind of wanted to, but it was in the downtown square, and there were a lot of people around. So. I think if we do do it again this summer, it'll be really neat to see what kind of like a different, more secluded location like in a park or something would do to it. And also uh, um, maybe discouraging uh, onlookers or whatever. (laughs) And while you were planning this, what kind of reactions did you get from people? I'm sure you were contacted by people from everywhere. What kind of reactions did you get? We got a lot of positive reactions but we also got a lot of uh, really negative reactions a lot of a lot of them were like think of the children and i was like well breasts aren't that scary so you think of your children anyway um we got a lot of really mean uh letters to the editor in the mercury and uh but we also got a lot of really positive kind of uh blog posts and uh and emails and facebook messages and stuff like that kind of supporting us and and telling and you know saying I personally don't feel comfortable doing this but I really respect you guys for you know taking the initiative to do this 
When you say mean, what do you mean? What kind of mean stuff? Oh, we had so many of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got called strippers and exhibitionists. Um, people were just saying that we're just doing it for attention and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and said that just we were like stupid, you know, stupid feminists or whatever. Um, yeah. Were the criticism from mostly from men or from women? Women, straight. I don't think we had any, any men insult us. So why do you think that is? Why, why would, first of all, why would women care? Why would anybody care what you're doing? How does it affect them? I think that it makes women uncomfortable because they personally aren't confident enough to, to show off their, their beauty in, in public. And uh, I think that the fact that somebody else is more comfortable than them makes makes them kind of like angry and, and kind of want to lash out and tell and kind of defend themselves by being like, well, I'm not, it's not that I'm not confident. You guys are just slutty. It's been about, it's been pretty much 15 years since uh, women have won the right to be topless. Thanks to Gwen Jacob. Nothing seems to have changed. I mean, really what you did was very difficult and uh, the reaction was very negative. The only thing that's different, I guess, is it wasn't illegal. What, what is it going to take to change attitudes? Um, well, I think what we really wanted to encourage or just remind women that it's okay to be top free and, you know, encourage them when they go to the beach. It takes, you know, one woman to do it and then two women do it. And then they start realizing it, breasts aren't perfect on everybody. And, you know, it's not so bad. Mine aren't so bad. Um, like when we did this top freedom thing and even going to your, like to Bear Oaks and once you start seeing other women's breasts, then you kind of realize like yours aren't that weird because all I've ever been comparing to is what I see in the movies and in magazines and stuff. And I'm always like, oh, my boobs aren't that big and like my nipples aren't that perfect and they're not hard all the time and you know, all that. And then I don't know, I feel if more women start seeing more breasts, they'll start being more comfortable uh, I think it just takes one or two really confident people uh, to kind of start doing it. And, you know, Andrea and I aren't incredibly confident. We went to the beach this summer and we wa we were like, all right, we should kind of become more comfortable with being topless around people because we can't really make, you know, this event the first time because that would be way too scary. So uh, we decided to swim topless at Guelph Lake. And we ended up swimming in the boat launch because we didn't we didn't want anyone to get mad at us. <laughs> so uh, I think that it just you know eventually enough people will will uh, kind of come to the realization that uh, that there's nothing wrong with with showing their breasts and having I don't know supporting the right. So do you think you'll do it again this year? I would really really like to. Um, we have a couple people interested in uh, in helping us out with the planning aspect, and uh, we've got a lot of bands that that weren't able to play last year because we ran out of room in our schedule, and so they they uh, are interested in playing this year. And it it seems like a lot of people are kind of really supportive of doing it again, except for my parents. But uh. <laughs> well, and what would you do differently this year? Um, I think we'd both like to make it more more of a festival um, than it was last year and also move it to a more comfortable area because the downtown core, it's, it's pavement, it's in the most bustling area of Guelph. Um, 
well, in downtown Guelph anyways, uh, so move it to a park so it could be like a festival and people could sit around and listen to music and, you know, sunbathe a little bit and just be really, really comfortable and not have a bunch of men gawking at them or the expectation that a lot of men were going to be there because um, some people decided not to come just because they thought it would be like it was at the start. So, Another thing about it being in a park this year too is, you know, I, ideally we want to feel comfortable, you know, being being top free everywhere. But uh, chances are we, we would only ever be really like top free in, in like kind of like a park situation or like a beach or somewhere more like that you would be kind of lounging around. Whereas, you know, I, I probably wouldn't walk down like downtown with my shirt off on a regular summer day that's like I don't know that's that's not so much something that I would like to accomplish rather than like just feeling like I'm able to take off my shirt at the park and walk around or sunbathe and and feel fine about it so having it in a park situation does kind of make it more relevant with a situation that we would do that in now, what did your friends say? Um, a lot of my friends are actually really supportive. I think that I, I probably have a pretty good group of friends. And, and you know, a lot of them showed up and, and uh, some of them took off their shirts and stayed for the whole day and, and helped me man the uh, the merchandise booth. And, and one of my friends ran all the sound for, for us. And, like, they were great. They were really supportive. And, and one of my friends actually had the radio show on uh, on CFRU and brought me in and talked about it on the air for like half an hour and it was it was great like there were a few people that were like oh well you know that's fine I just probably won't talk to you for a while but uh no most of them were great yeah same we're kind of like in the same type of people for friends um but yeah it was really nice to see my friends come out and um my my boss was there that was kind of weird but uh (laughs) yeah um, but yeah, no, it was really good. Everyone was really supportive. I didn't have any friends that disapproved. And even my aunt talked to me and um, she was not exactly supportive, but she was like, you know, good for you for doing something you believe in, you know. So it was good. That took a lot of courage. And uh, I've got to give a lot of credit. It's not every 19 or 20 year old that has that kind of strength of character and uh, the ability to. Uh, go ahead with their principles, regardless of what the people that they know um, think of them, and regardless of the criticism and uh, the pressure not to do it. But ultimately, they were able to do this because of a very important precedent set 20 years ago by an equally brave uh, 19 or 20-year-old. I'm not sure how old she was. The precedent is known in the courts as R versus Jacob, and uh, it's been cited over the years many, many times. It's a true benchmark. It's, it's really changed the law. And it was even in 2005, it was even cited in a Supreme Court of Canada case. It's that important. The person, of course, is Gwen Jacob. I really wanted to meet her. I really, um, she was an influence on me when I, when I was in university myself about 20 years ago. Uh, she's, she's a bit younger, but I uh, I saw the courage that she had and the perseverance and the strength of character, and it certainly showed me that one individual can indeed make a difference. 
Um, she did the fight with very few resources, with essentially no money. Um, and, you know, at that age, very little life experience. But she persevered and she managed. So I managed to contact Gwen Jacob. And what follows is my interview with her. So tell me about the time when you first decided that you had, should have the right to take your top off and what led you to that conclusion? Well, it was something that I'd been discussing with my girlfriends um, for some time and we walked out of the extremely air-conditioned university center at the University of Guelph into a wall of heat and humidity. It uh, turned out actually to have been the hottest day of the entire summer when I was charged and I, I walked out into this wall of heat and there were guys playing frisbee and hacky sack and, you know, touch football and, you know, running around with their shirts off, enjoying the breeze, getting some sun. And then there were women walking around melting. And I was walking across Johnson Green, which is a big sports field. And um, I was with my girlfriend, Susie, and she and I were talking and I said, you know, I really wish I could just take my shirt off. And, and she said, you know, basically put up or shut up. We've been talking about this all summer. She didn't actually do it with me because she was wearing a pair of like bib overall style shorts. So she would have been quite a lot naked if she'd undone those. Um, but this other woman was walking the other way and, and Susie said, uh, oh, Shirley, you know, Gwen wants to take her shirt off. And Shirley just shrugged and said, go for it. And, and, it was the the freedom of not having to explain, justify, rationalize, argue, debate. She just accepted it, and and so you know she was a, a real catalyst in 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 my decision to actually do it. So with my hands shaking furiously, I took my shirt off and jammed it down the back of my shorts. And I can't tell you the freedom that that entailed in that moment. That was like, uh you know, nearly euphoric. I was scared to death. Um, but, you know, nearly euphoric sense of uh, taking control of my own body, taking off a definition that I had been assigned by my gender at birth of what my body was about and who it was for and all of the rules that I had been brought up under. You know, when you're a, a little girl and, and you know, your parents put you in a swimsuit. It's got this, you know, little band of material that covers your nipples, which look no different from the boys who who are in the swimming pool with you. But, you know, this this is what we're taught essentially from birth. And uh, when I was 19, I, you know, took off that mentality. I took off that definition of myself when I took off my shirt. And um, although it took five years to actually win the case in court... I won right then. And, you know, I was just waiting for the rest of them to catch up with me. So you took off your shirt, and how far did you get? Mm, that day was not really a problem. I had, a, I had the company of my girlfriend, and we walked down the main road into town and, and cut through the park and went home, as we always do. And, you know, there were a lot of um, very shocked and surprised people um, but uh, there was no real um, dissent or aggression or anything of that nature. Um, you know, you can stand on a subway platform and sing at the top of your lungs, and if you're alone, you're crazy, and if you're with someone, you're just having a good time. Um, the second day, the following day, I took my shirt off, and uh, I was by myself, 
and I walked the same route home. And um, a lot of people, uh, well, not, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but a number of people um, took that, you know, absence of my friend, that the fact that I was alone gave them, uh, you know, I, I more license in their minds to say things that were, uh, you know, maybe a, a little more on the derogatory side or people were, were more apt to throw insults the second day when I was by myself. Um, I mean, the comments range from just like, you're not wearing a shirt, which is, you know, just funny when you're the one standing there and you clearly know that already. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, but there was, I, I went actually to where I was working and I had walked, um, I had met a, a fellow in the park who was actually a naturist and I, I had a conversation with him. I was sitting on the swings and, uh, and he came and joined me and we had a conversation. He was a naturist and this and that. And then I met him again um, in another part of town and he was working on his porch. Um, he was a landlord and, and he was redoing his porch. And I, and I, you know, stopped to chat with him because I thought, you know, maybe I, I could get some work. And uh, that's when the people across the road noticed that I was there. And the fellow came out, the husband came out, and, and he pulled up a lawn chair and a beer and thought this was a private show for him. And so he, he was making comments like, um, turn around, I want to see if they're better than my wife's. And yeah, his wife was pretty appalled. And I, there was someone else there who pulled a couple of kids in off the street, all from the same household. Um, and, uh, you know, she ended up calling the police. Uh, and she, she marched across the road and, and, and ironically asked me, she says, don't you have any pride? And I said, well, yeah, I actually have got lots of pride. I, I, I'm apparently lacking in the shame department. You know, so um, she called the police and, and they sent a, a, a couple of detectives. They sent a female officer who actually took me into custody. They, they came around uh, and they got out of their air-conditioned cars and they put their suit jackets on even though it was some, you know, 90-odd degrees out. And I thought, okay, we're certainly not starting from the same mind frame here. Um, they, they, asked, they came over and they asked me to put my shirt back on. And of course, I refused. So no thanks. I'm quite comfortable. And three fellows walked by with no shirts on. I said, oh, look, officers, there goes some men without any shirts on. How come you're not asking them to put their shirts back on? They just went, okay. And they kept walking, these, these, these three fellows. And, and of course, the police paid no attention to them. Um, Eventually, I was taken into custody, taken down to the police station, put in a holding cell, and I was charged with committing an indecent act, which is incidentally the same charge that Pee Wee Herman was charged with for masturbating in Burger King. I really don't equate the two actions. So how long, how hard was the battle? How long was it? How did you do it? It must have been expensive. Um, it wasn't particularly expensive. Um, it may have been more expensive in the fact that, you know, while my entire life was consumed by this court battle and um, really more so by the, uh, the whole um, media circus that surrounded it. I, I did, you know, hundreds of interviews. I appeared on talk shows. I did a speaking tour through the universities in the area. And um, that took up a lot of time. Um, which I wasn't holding down a job instead. So it, it didn't cost a lot um, in terms of actual cash that I had to spend. I sold T-shirts, ironically. 
um, that raised money to cover the lawyer's disbursements, and the lawyer didn't actually charge a fee for his services. He just took it on because it was an interesting case. And, you know, I was, I was 19 years old. I, I didn't go out and seek out, you know, a human rights lawyer to do this. I just walked in off the street to some guy who signed in the window said, you know, he took legal aid. And uh, I don't think I actually got legal aid. I, I, just, uh, I just paid him with T-shirt sales. His name was uh, Jeff Wright. And he um, took the case to court and we lost. And so I was charged $75, which is, you know, whatever, $37.50 per breast. And I never paid it. I uh, launched an appeal and I took it to the next level with a family law lawyer who someone had gotten me in touch with. She was from London and she didn't have any experience in criminal law, but she was passionate about the case. And uh, we took that to the next level of court, and we eventually won. Many adjournments, many return visits, you know, a, a thousand or so interviews. Um, more, the, the battle was about changing public perceptions. And I actually learned a lot about working with the media because... Um, I would give an interview and they would take, they would ask me a specific question and I had to answer it to get past it, but then they would take a little sound bite and the impression that was left with the viewers or the readers was not necessarily what I was trying to get at. And um, I also learned that you could deal with a, a reporter who was very supportive of what you were talking about and then the editor would slap some um, title on the article that would give a completely different impression, and that's the first impression that someone gets when they pick up the paper. Um, so it was it was quite interesting, um, and I learned to watch the news a lot differently. Having been in the news, I had a completely different perspective of the media forever after. Um, I, I you know intuitively look for spin in stories. I wonder about what question was asked that prompted the response, and I marvel at politicians who hear a question, say, thank you for asking that, and say something absolutely unrelated, because they know what they're trying to get across to the public, and they won't be steered off course. It's not honest, but it's effective. So all of that was, was quite an interesting learning experience, a very big part of shaping who I was as I grew up, because of course at 19 you already think you are grown up. I'm twice that age now, and uh, looking back, I think, wow, I don't know how I did that. I did it without Facebook. I did it without Twitter. I did it without, you know, any sort of social networking media. And uh, for the most part, I did, I did most of it myself. Um, after the appeal, you know, certain, certain people who were very close to me started taking on some of the interviews, started doing something. So I didn't have to be everywhere at once. And that was great, but you know, I mean, if, if I was doing that today and I had access to social media, it would be a completely different situation. As it was, people would show up at um, universities to hear lectures that I was giving. They would show up, you know, practically with, with you know, pitchforks and flaming torches, and they were coming to get me. And they would hear what I had to say and why I was doing what I was doing and why it was important and what my vision was, what I wanted to see come out of this at the other side. And they would leave buying my t-shirts and giving me donations. And that's the difference between hearing it through the media and hearing it from me. What was the personal toll for that five or six years? After the fact, okay, it was well worth it after the fact because you won. But you didn't know that. And there were lots of people who were, I assume, not very supportive along the way. Do you know, I actually never, 
I, you know, I don't know if it was my idealism or my youthful optimism, but it never dawned on me that I wouldn't win. You know, I mean, I've, I've been through other situations since where I've learned that it's not always the person who's right that comes out on top. But as far as I was concerned, I had natural justice on my side. I didn't care what was done in the past. This was the, this was the way we were going in the future. And it never dawned on me that I wouldn't win. It was just, could I stick it out? So that's, that's the entire attitude that I had the whole time that I was there. My mother used to say, you know, he'd fight the devil himself. And I'd say, yeah, and I'd probably win. So um, I guess I was just the right person for the job. What toll did it take on you personally, though? What, what kind of things were you faced with that made it even more difficult, besides the obvious legal court battles? Well, it's funny because, um, you know, first you're sort of ridiculed and ignored or, or vilified, and then eventually when you win, um, you're, you know, celebrated and you're a hero and, and all of this. Um, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And when people would see me, they would recognize me, they would meet me, and of course they assumed they knew me. And, and if they didn't support what I was doing, they didn't like me. And it was, it was just that simple. It was like, oh, you're that person. The end, um, you know, and, and it's unfortunate because, you know, I would say to them, you know, okay, I get that there, I'm getting some static here. I understand that you have an issue with what I'm doing, but I bet that you could think of, say, your best friend, and there would be one issue that the two of you just are never going to see eye to eye on, and you're still great friends. So let's start again. You know, there are lots of things about me that you don't know, and, and I'm sure we can find some common ground. And if you, if you are interested, listen to what I have to say. I'll tell you why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, you know, maybe you'll at least understand and not want to interfere with uh, my assertion that I have a right to do something uh, and not be charged and, and uh, criminalized for doing something that I could do easily if I was a man without any question. So the people who were against you who were they? Why were they? Get, what was wrong? What? Why were they opposed to what you were doing? Besides the crown, which was obviously just fighting for the sake of fighting. Well, interestingly, I would think that most of the people who were strongly objecting to what I was doing were women, um, because they would not make that choice for themselves. I guess they may have felt that there would have been a pressure for them to do that, or a pressure for them to put up with having to face why they wouldn't be comfortable doing that themselves. You know, I would never do that, so I don't want to put up with seeing you do it. Um, and, and I would say to people, I mean, I, we did a, a rally when we walked across the Peace Bridge, and there were a number of women who showed up who were just not interested in taking off their shirts. And I said, you could go to a pro-choice rally around the abortion issue, and even if you were never intending, if you could never personally see yourself making that choice, you could still support the right of other women to have that choice. This is a rally. This 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 is a rally. This is a fight about having the freedom to do it, not being told you're a criminal if you make a choice because it's different than something someone else would choose. And and it's not about what you would personally necessarily want to do yourself. I mean, I I spearheaded this movement. Um, I didn't really mean to start a movement. I was just trying to catch a breeze. I was 19 years old. I, I wasn't interested in becoming an international celebrity. Um. It just sort of happened. It sort of came with it. And, and I, I stuck with it and I followed through. But it wasn't what I was out to do. I, I wasn't out to do that. And today, you know, I, I may take my shirt off here and there occasionally, but it's not something, you know, it's like, okay, we can, so let's all. 
you know, it, it, it wasn't about that. And some people criticize me for, there are so many really big, important issues. You know, why aren't you fighting for, you know, uh, access to childcare? Why aren't you fighting against, you know, uh, violence, domestic violence, violence against women? Why aren't you fighting against this and that? And I said, well, you know, it, supposing the government said to you tomorrow, um, makeup is illegal. I mean, really, who cares, right? Okay, so fine, we all get to see what we really look like. The end. There would be a revolution in this country. You know, I mean, it's so trivial, it's so unnecessary, but it's a personal choice. Some choose to do it, some choose not to do it, but if you tell people you're not allowed to do it, you've created a whole other issue. That's an issue about the state interfering where they have no business. And so it was a fundamental issue to me. It wasn't a trivial issue. It was a basic issue, a basic issue of personal rights and freedoms. And the government doesn't have any right to, to go there. Was it also an equality issue or a freedom issue? Because if the government said, fine, we're going to make it illegal for men and women to be top free, topless, would that have been okay with you? I don't think so. I don't think I would have wanted to see society go backwards and become more repressed and uh, less free to uh, you know, express ourselves, I, I don't think that would have been the way to go. You know, because it's still the government butting in where they really have no business. It was you know, only 50 years prior to that the men were not allowed to take their shirts off. And it was, there was never a law. You can't go through the criminal code and say, oh, here's where it says you have to have your breasts covered from here to here. You have to cover your, your areola of your nipple. It, there's nothing specifically written there. It's, it's a very broad-based law that's open to interpretation, and it's done that way so that as social mores change, you know, we don't necessarily have to keep to the same standard, and we don't necessarily have to go back and rewrite the law. And, and because people are creative, and you can't possibly cover every specific indecent act that, that one could conceive of doing, so it's, it's just a very general law, and it's open to interpretation. And no one had ever challenged it. It wasn't a law. It was a, uh, an unspoken social contract that this was just not what women did. And, you know, 100 years prior to that, it was women just didn't vote. Or women just didn't work outside the home. Or women just didn't, didn't, didn't. And now we do. So Gwen is a mother, and uh, she... Uh she obviously, uh, she breastfed her children and she breastfed them in public. In fact, she was breastfeeding them in the court um, on the last days of her trial. And that's what breasts are ultimately about. That's why they exist. We are mammals. Those are mammary glands. That's what makes us mammal. We nurse, we nourish, we feed our children, our babies from the breast. And yet it's still a battle. Despite it being widely recognized as an ideal way of feeding children, the best way if you can. Um, that wasn't true when I was born. When I was born, they believed that we could do better. You know, why do that breast milk thing which is done by your body when we can synthesize chemically some much better formulas that are just right for children? Turns out we weren't so right. Turns out that uh, breast milk even changes uh, from time to time. You know, when uh, my wife Linda was feeding our children, I was always amazed by how the body knows exactly what the children needs. You know, our kids would feed every few hours during the day, and, and we were lucky that our kids did not feed at night. 
So you would think that, you know, six, seven, eight hours without feeding the children, when during the day they feed every two hours or so, that Linda's breasts would become engorged with milk. But no, no. The uh, body adjusted and made just enough milk, just what she needed, what the kids needed at the right time. And it's so practical when people talk about, you know, how formula's convenient. It's not. You know, when you're, when you're feeding, when you're nursing, you're always carrying with you what you need for your children. It's always mixed. It's always at the right temperature. The only thing that gets in the way is society's reaction. And despite the fact that uh, in most places it's still recognized now as a, a right and the right thing to do and the best thing to do and something we should accept, people still get told to stop what they're doing, to stop feeding, to go somewhere else, to go and feed in the bathroom and the toilet, or to hide in a corner or to bury themselves under a blanket so nobody can see because they're so upset, so offended, so disturbed by what should be so natural. Just recently uh, in Montreal, there was a woman who was thrown out uh, of a store or told to leave because she was breastfeeding in a children's store, ironically, of all places, because you know what happens when children see those nipples or breastfeeding. No, I don't know, actually. What is it? Can somebody can somebody call me or send me an email, let me know what is the damage to children, because I have never been able to figure it out. But as usual, thank goodness, there was a, a small army of women who fought back and uh, who organized a breastfeeding sit-in to protest, to make sure that society doesn't forget and that their rights are held up. To stop breastfeeding her five-month-old daughter. You might remember the story. It was in the news a couple weeks ago. Aphrodite Salas joins us on it. Aphrodite, the women are asking for government action here to guarantee the rights of breastfeeding mothers. Yes, yeah, Todd. Around 60 mothers were there breastfeeding their babies for about an hour outside of the kids' clothing store orchestra that was in the downtown shopping complex of Lizelle. These moms were channeling Gandhi, working to change people's perceptions through quite possibly the most peaceful protest imaginable. I think that it's atrocious for a nursing mother to be asked to leave a store. That was in Montreal, and uh, one of the uh, really leading activists for breastfeeding is a young woman by the name of Emma Kwasnika. She's an activist. She calls herself a lactivist. Um, she's very big into promoting breastfeeding and encouraging breastfeeding. She's also very interested in all kinds of childbearing issues. Um, she's recently been in the media a lot because she's involved with an organization called Eats on Feet, where women are sharing excess breast milk with other women who don't have access to breast milk or because they can't produce enough. It's called Human Milk Sharing, and it is a bit controversial the uh, health authorities are concerned because the women do it on a voluntary basis. They become friends. They become uh, partners, if you will, in the raising of their children. And uh, as a result, of course, there's no medical screening to ensure there's no problems with the milk, etc. Um, Emma would disagree that that's a problem, of course, and she has. Um, and uh, But ultimately... I wanted to talk to her because obviously to Emma and mothers everywhere, breasts are first and foremost about nourishing her children. 
My name is Emma Kwasnika, and I am a woman, wife, and mother to three children, and I am a lactivist. Now, why, why are you a lactivist? How did you become a lactivist, and why is that important? I actually didn't even realize it was important, because I think it's just part of my mothering to breastfeed and to breastfeed wherever the baby needs to eat. And so I kind of just stumbled into it and realized I was an activist. So why do we need a lactivist? Why do you have to be an activist in this world? Because there is so much discrimination against breastfeeding women and mothers. And while I didn't realize it, because I grew up in a home where that was completely normal, my mother breastfed all of us, uh, it is not the norm anymore in society today. So, obviously, we're mammals. We have mammaries. That's what we're naturally supposed to do. Why has society, our society anyway, the society we're in, why do you think we have such an issue with it? Well, it all comes back to the hyper-sexualization of women's breasts and the functional aspect of women's breasts being swept right under the rug. Interestingly, myself, I have not had any issue ever breastfeeding in public. Nobody has ever, even really that I've noticed, given me a bad look or questioned what I'm doing or suggested I should not be doing it. But it does happen, absolutely, just because it doesn't happen to me doesn't mean it's not happening. And it is happening, and it, some would say even rampantly. But the discrimination that I have faced, um, which still shocks me even today, although it probably shouldn't, is on Facebook and having my photos and my entire account deleted for simple breastfeeding photos posted to my page. So are you showing nipples, or is that the problem, or is it just the feeding itself? No, because I've had many photos deleted where there's no visible areola at all. So then we question, is it just the act of breastfeeding that is needs to be censored according to Facebook? Or is it something more where women who are busting out of their bras and showing wonderful amounts of cleavage, which I think is beautiful, uh, are okay for Facebook. But once there's a baby latched on to that breast, it's somehow no longer acceptable. We are questioning this. So as a um, as an activist, what do you do? Well, I champion the cause or I fight for women to stand up for themselves um, and feel supported to do what's best by their babies at all times, which involves breastfeeding. So every woman should feel comfortable, no matter how she does it, should feel comfortable breastfeeding her baby anywhere, anytime. It's really about women finding their own power and taking that back and becoming more autonomous and knowing their rights. That's very important. Many women, even Canadian women, don't realize that it's okay and they're absolutely covered by the law to breastfeed anywhere that they're allowed to be themselves, legally allowed to be in public. They can also breastfeed in that place. Many women question that. Am I okay to be breastfeeding here? But it's covered all across Canada in all provincial law Based on gender discrimination, you cannot discriminate against a pregnant or lactating woman. Therefore, wherever you're legally entitled to be, you can breastfeed. Women need to know that. So we make sure that women, that Canadian women know this. And um, a lot of what I do and what I encourage other women to do is on Facebook, just because I'm mother to young children, so I'm at home most of my days. I do a lot of activism by posting photos of breastfeeding and encouraging other mothers to do the same because I believe it will re-normalize breastfeeding. You've also been in the media a fair bit recently for uh, women sharing breast milk. 
Yes, lots of media attention, which is somewhat surprising, although I guess it really shouldn't be, but I, I am quite surprised that it's gotten so much media attention. I'm grateful for it because I think it will elevate the status of breast milk and breastfeeding in general. But Eats on Feeds Global is a breast milk sharing network based on Facebook pages and chapters. So all of the states in the United States and all provinces in Canada are covered and women can meet online on the Facebook pages to connect those who have a surplus of breast milk and those who have a need. It's been a fantastic launch and apparently very popular. But what's the controversy then? Breasts. (laughs) Breasts are at the heart of all. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, media loves that. So as soon as breasts in any capacity, even if it is breastfeeding or involved, the media jumps on it. So I guess I expected a bit of that. Uh, Bodily fluids coming from women are always controversial, even though it's breast milk and it's not necessarily or in any way related to other bodily fluids like blood or semen. Uh, Breast milk is different. It's a food, and many people don't realize that, but that's an important clarification to make. Unfortunately, the media has run with it being compared to blood and other bodily fluids. But breast milk is not a biohazard, for example, and many people don't know that. You have some issues with uh, the people who are contacting you or following you through Facebooks or other things being actually men pretending to be women, right? Yeah, uh, me specifically, because they have contacted me, but we are finding there are some men who are contacting women on the Eats on Feeds global network pages requesting breast milk, Um, but they have gone so far as to pretend that they're women or to explain that they have some sort of immune condition that breast milk, their doctor said, would help them, so they should come to Eats on Feeds and ask for breast milk. A bit shady, but that certainly is out there. So why do you think do these men have these uh, unusual kind of fetishes? Where does that come from in our society? Uh, yes, I, I think once it becomes, you know, incessantly messaging women and this obsession with getting their hands on breast milk or, or wanting to know how the breast milk comes out of the breast or being particularly interested in how your child breastfeeds at your breast, I think we're into the realm of pathology at that point. Um, I am concerned as to, for the future of humanity because I really do feel like this is coming from the fact that many of us and many of the men with these problems were not nurtured at their mother's breasts and were not nurtured from a particularly sensitive emotionally or physically mother. And so we have all of this. I mean, it's based on many other things as well, but I think a large part of it is how the lack of mothering that happens for these humans. So how do we make the world a better place? How do we get over this? Is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? Um, I'm sensing it's it's going to get worse before it's going to get better. I have a hope for breastfeeding in that the more we see it, the more we renormalize it, the more we see it out there in public. And in what I do with my work on Facebook, the more we see breastfeeding photos and the more support, not just other women, but in general public looking at these photos the more it will become normal again. If we hide it away and shame women and tell women we cannot post our breastfeeding photos, then it's just going to get worse. That's no way to beat what's happening. That's no way to fix the problem. And uh, it's a very gloomy future if that is allowed to continue. So I'm fighting hard so that that stops. So you're you're a lactivist, um, but you're not a top-free activist. How do you feel about top-free rights for women? 
Yes, I think because I hadn't grown up with that, and in Quebec and in British Columbia, I think that right is not protected. It's not sort of been on my radar until my activism on Facebook and actually meeting Paul Rappaport. Um, I find myself becoming a top free activist as a result of this because I think the two are, are tightly uh, interrelated. And uh, it'd be interesting to see, I mean, I guess it is a Canadian federal legislation, so women technically could start pushing the envelope in other provinces besides Ontario. And uh, you may find me as a part of that movement in the future. So here is the Indiscreet Breastfeeding Manifesto. It was written by a woman named Sunday Horn in North Carolina in 2001. She's the mother of three children. And I think it really summarizes it well. It says, I will nurse my child anytime, anywhere, no matter who is present or what I am wearing. I will bear my breast with pride and confidence. I will not apologize for nourishing or nurturing my child. I will not smother my child with a napkin or blanket. I will smile at everyone around me and ignore rude stares. I will know that I am giving my child the perfect infant food from the most efficient, ecological, and economical delivery system. I will know that I am giving my child a healthy start that is his or her birthright. I will set an example for women and girls, educate the public, dispel breastfeeding myths, desexualize the breast, and make the world a better place all through the simple act of feeding my child. I think that's really well put and really well summarized. So I will summarize by saying that women do need to take control of their bodies. And they need to recognize that their breasts, while obviously part of being a woman and part of femininity, is not their entire identity. And that their uniqueness is who they are, and that's where the true power is. Their breast is an important part of what they can do and what they are, but it is first and foremost for their children. Men, of course, need to relax a bit and see the big picture too. Men need to stop looking at breasts as just objects that are attached to women and seeing them as part of the woman, part of what gives women strength, part of that amazing thing that is woman that makes children and feeds children and raises them. We're part of that. We're part of humanity. Men and women should be together, should recognize each other. And at the end of the day, that's what naturism can bring to the world. Through naturism, people recognize that we are whole, entire bodies, that we are not ashamed of our bodies. We are not embarrassed by our bodies. We are not offended by other people's bodies, that all parts are equal, and all parts form the whole, that is, the person, the being. But most importantly, the being is in the soul and in the personality that we are. So that's it for this episode of The Naturist Living Show. Thank you once again for listening. My name is Stéphane Deschain. 
I'm your host for this episode of The Naturist Living Show and the owner of Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. You can find links to all the things I talked about, all the sites, all the different uh, items that we discussed on the show notes at the website for the show at naturistliving.bearoaks.ca. Please keep sending comments and suggestions if you have anything you want to share with us. Send us an email at naturistliving at bearoaks.ca. That's B-A-R-E, of course, bearoaks.ca.ca, because we are in Canada. Join us again in about a month for the next episode of The Naturist Living Show. This episode of The Naturist Living Show was brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Traditional values means that naturism is more than just taking your clothes off. It is a life philosophy with physical, psychological, environmental, social and moral benefits. Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park strives to promote those naturist values in a modern setting that provides the amenities and services that our members and visitors expect. Free your body, free your mind. Learn more at www.bearoaks.ca.